Turn our attention to John chapter 6. This is the third week that we have been working through this section on Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000 plus, the 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 people that were gathered together there to see the miracle of him feeding this large crowd. We're going to begin here today at verse 50. This is what Jesus states. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this... Many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as, as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We'll pause there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us insight and understanding to the surprising hope and encouragement that this passage gives to us, and that you would strengthen us through it, and that you would strengthen me as I preach your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is a really odd passage, <laughs> and it's odd not only because of the alarming language, but I also personally find this passage odd because it has had a surprisingly profound impact on my life in many different ways. Because I think if I were to pick a passage of Scripture that I would, that I would choose to have a profound impact in my life, it would not be this passage. 
I mean, there's good truth in it, but it just, this wouldn't be the passage that I picked. And so it's been odd to me because I've watched this passage and how the Lord has used it in several different ways. One time I saw very clearly the Holy Spirit work in a man's heart as he was reading this passage about eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood. And he just broke down and committed his life to the Lord right then. And I didn't really understand what was going on. I'm like, how did this lead to that? Whoa, that's weird. But the Holy Spirit used it in a really remarkable way. And I also find this passage personally a bit odd because, as I mentioned, this passage has had an extraordinary impact on my life. And it's the passage that the Lord continues to use in my life regularly, quite frankly, whether I want him to or not. And what this passage does, and I'll go into that in a few minutes, what this passage lays out for us is it identifies and presents with the the fundamental nature of what true faith in Jesus Christ really is. And it exposes some very sobering, And I think encouraging truths about the nature of faith in Christ. Very sobering truths. The first one is this. Is that from a Christian perspective, there is something much worse than being a non-Christian. From a Christian perspective. There's something much worse than being a non-Christian. And that's being a fake Christian. That it is far worse to be a fake Christian than to be a non-Christian. Notice what's happening here in this passage. We begin, as we've been working through the last three weeks in this miracle, we come to verse 60, and Jesus lays out and says, this is what's happened here. When many of Jesus' disciples heard it, heard the teaching that he said, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And then a few verses later, in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back, And no longer walked with him. If you recall, where we began in this journey was that there was a huge crowd of people who were following Jesus. Huge crowd of people. Jesus had compassion on the crowd. And he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. Crowd of over 10,000, 15,000, who knows, 20,000 people maybe. He feeds this enormous crowd. After that, he moves to the other side of the lake. And there is a a bunch of groupies who follow Jesus over to the other side of the lake. And Jesus clarifies to them that he's not going to be their king. And he says to them, you're only following after me because um, you ate bread. You didn't even realize what what the bread pointed to, that it pointed to the bread of life. Right? So there is this massive winnowing going on in this passage that we start with 10, 15, 20,000 people and we end with 12. We end with 12, because it goes, there is the gigantic crowd that Jesus, is, Jesus feeds, there are the groupies that follow Jesus to the other side of the lake, and then what we saw in verse, in verse 66 is that Jesus says, or the text records, that after Jesus said these things to them, many of Jesus' disciples no longer followed him. This is a much smaller group. These are people who said, I will follow Jesus. I am a disciple of Jesus. And they leave. 
and they abandon the faith, and they abandon following Jesus, at least as far as we can tell. And then it finally ends up with the 12, the 12 disciples whom Jesus has chosen, though one of them would eventually betray him. What you see here is that there are, there are many people who decide to follow Jesus until they don't, right? There are many people who decide to follow Jesus until they decide not to follow Jesus anymore. And I think you can probably expect at some level that it is normal in the Christian journey, in the Christian life, and as you observe Christianity, it is normal that there are many people who there are many people who, are, who fake Christianity. There are many, and I, would, I hope not, but there are possibly, if this, if this passage is normative, which I don't think it is, but if this passage is normative, it is possible that there are many more people who fake Christianity than people who truly follow Christianity. Now, as I say that, let me be clear, it is not ours to judge who's a Christian and who's not a Christian. It's not ours to judge to walk around and say, she's a Christian, she's not a Christian. She's a Christian, she's not a Christian. He's a Christian, he's not a Christian. That's not our place to do that. But if you're here this morning and you're investigating Christianity and you're, you're not a Christian, something that you need to know is that there are many who claim to follow Jesus Christ who don't actually follow Jesus Christ. There are many who claim to follow Christ who fake following Christ. And what Jesus teaches again and again in Scripture and in, I mean, the Scripture as a whole, but Jesus in particular, he emphasizes that there are things that are worse than being a, a non-Christian. It's being a fake Christian. And Jesus goes to great effort to emphasize this truth. We begin to see it in verse, um, in verse 26. When the crowd has followed him, they've moved to the other side of the lake, and they say, Teacher, what should we do? And Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, that point to the fact that he is the Christ, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Jesus is saying, you people, there, are, there are crowds of people that are following, and Jesus says, you people who are following me, you need to, know what, you need to decide whether or not you're going to be a true follower or that you're a fake follower. But it's a teaching that Jesus says repeatedly. In Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to give you a bunch of verses here, quite frankly, to to overwhelm you with this reality that Jesus makes so clear in so many different times. In Matthew chapter 13, there's the parable of the four soils. This word of God is spread. The seed is the word of God. Some of the soil falls on the rocky path. The devil comes and takes it away. Um, falls on the path. The devil comes and takes it away. Some of the, f- the seed falls on the rocky ground. And what the text says about those who represent the rocky ground is that they receive the word of God with joy. They receive it with joy, but they wither up and die in their faith because they have no root. There are seeds that fall among the thorns. And what Jesus says, those represent those that that the word of God and the gospel begins to grow in their life, but the cares of life choke them out. And there's only one type of soil that the seed falls on and bears fruit tenfold, hundredfold, thousandfold. In John, Jesus picking up the same image that those who are in Christ bear fruit and bear much fruit. And that there are people who claim to be in Christ who don't abide in Christ and don't continue in Christ. Jesus says this. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. But if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and and they are burned. In Matthew chapter 7, Matthew's version of the similar teaching, Jesus says, every good tree will bear good fruit. And then he says to the people who are following, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus, he goes to great lengths to say, not everyone who is a follower of Jesus is actually a follower of Jesus. And so the question at first that we need to ask ourselves as those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus is this, are you fake or are you for real? Are, are you false or, or are you true? You see, why being a fake Christian is worse is because, you know what, I, I can respect people who are deliberately not Christian, deliberately so. You know, people who say, you know what, I've, I've investigated this, I can accurately represent Christianity, I can accurately state what Christianity believes in a way that Christians would agree with. I, can invest, I have investigated this, and I believe, and I understand, and I am, I am willing to accept the consequences if I am wrong. I can respect a person who holds to that view. But what's far worse than that is someone who, who's just on the bandwagon, someone who's just following in the crowd and saying, yeah, we're followers of Jesus. People who say that, yeah, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and then, then who turn and abandon him. What's far worse is people who, who say they're a Christian. Maybe they're a member of a church. They identify as a Christian, but they're not actually a Christian. And it's far worse because they think that the blessings of God apply to them when they don't. And if this is you, Scripture warns you and calls you and invites you to turn to Jesus Christ, to wholeheartedly turn to Jesus Christ to repent and to trust in him and to rest upon him alone. And if you're here this morning and, and, and you're, not, you're not sure about this and maybe you're not sure about Christianity, you're investigating this, we are here to help and we would love to help you. We'd love to help you sort this out because being a fake Christian is far worse than being a non-Christian. But let me clarify what it means to be a true believer. To be a true believer does not mean that you never have any doubts or questions. Look at how this develops in this passage. We come over to verse 60. Is that true Christians wrestle with their belief. Actually wrestle with it. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, do you, do you take offense at this? Jesus says, this is a hard, or his disciples said, this is a hard saying. And Jesus says, does, does this offend you? And the reality is, is that there are hard truths that confront us in Scripture. There are many, 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 many wonderful truths, but there are hard truths And when they say this, when the followers say this is a hard saying, what are they referring to? Well, this whole discourse that Jesus has just laid out 
about eating my bread, eating my flesh, and drinking my blood. We see it in verse 53 to 58. Here is the hard saying that they're referring to. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And so the response is, this is a hard saying. Well, what exactly is Jesus saying in this passage? Why is this, why is this hard? Well, we saw last week Jesus' explanation to understand this. It comes in verse 40 and 47. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. So what does it mean to feed upon the bread of life, to eat His flesh and to drink His blood? It means that, that, that you're trusting in Christ alone, that you, are, that you are believing in the bread of life, that you are relying upon Him, that you are looking to Him to be your source of your relationship with God and fellowship with God. And the offense of this passage, why it's hard, as the people at the time were, under, were dealing with, why it's hard is for one of two reasons. One, it was a bit hard because some people inappropriately took Jesus overly literally. They, they took him literally. Certainly Jesus is being provocative here. But I actually think the greater offense and the more likely offense was they knew that he wasn't practicing cannibalism, is that the more likely offense is what Jesus was saying by this. And what Jesus was saying was this, is that eternal life is only found in him. That Jesus Christ himself, he is saying, I am God. That life is found in Christ alone, and it's wholly found, wholly and only found in Jesus Christ. Therefore, drink it up. Drink it up. And the crowds who are gathered around him are saying, wait a second, this is a hard saying. I don't know if we can accept this. That's what it was for them. But I think for each of us, I think for Christians, there, is, there are hard sayings in the Bible. There are hard teachings in the Bible. And true Christians wrestle with belief. There are things that are at times hard to accept. And what I mean by this is that there come these moments, I think, in our spiritual journey where we pause and say, Whoa. Do I really believe this? Like, do I, do I really believe this to be true? Am I, am I really committed to this? And there come these profound moments in our spiritual journey where we are forced to, to wrestle with the truth of who God is and what God says about himself in his word and to say, do I believe this? And am I, am I submitting my life to, to this truth? I know in my own spiritual journey, there's been several profound moments where I've said, whoa, do I, do I believe this? Do I really believe this? I mean, some of them for me were these. The idea of that my sin deserved punishment. I mean, yeah, I got, yeah, Hitler, he gets it. I mean, he, did, he deserves punishment forever. But me, I'm, I'm not that bad. 
I'm not that bad. Wait a second. Scripture says that, that my sin, that the only, the only adequate payment for my sin is the death of Jesus Christ, his perfect son. I'm not that bad. I don't, I don't need that. A- am I really that bad? Am I really that desperate? Am I really that, that hopeless apart from him? It's this profound moment of saying, yeah, I am. Another profound moment for me was whether or not I would actually submit to the, the lordship of Christ in my life. That, he, that he's really the Lord, that he's the boss, that he's the one that calls the shots. You know, I mean, there are moments where I've wrestled with this and said, wait a second. Am I going to be the Lord of my life or is Jesus going to be the Lord of my life? There were times that I had the opportunity to, to lie for financial gain. And I said, hmm. If I, if I trust that what God says is true and right, will I be okay? Will I, will I submit to that? And there was a moment where I said, you know, I don't know. I, I wonder if there's another option. I think another one for me was actually you know, speak, uh, related to that is, is related to money. To saying, whoa, God says that he owns everything that I have, that I'm simply a steward of it. And that I'm supposed to use my money for, for God and for his purposes. Whew. Well, he, he doesn't really mean that, does he? And so I read the Bible and I restudied the Bible again to find Bible verses that wanted to say what I wanted to say and try to pick verses that I, that I could ignore. And again, I was confronted with the reality of saying, okay, am I, is Christ going to be Lord of my life or am I going to be Lord of my life? I think another profound moment for me was, you know, the truth that God is the potter and I am the clay, and that if he is the potter, that he has 100% an absolute right to do with me whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And when I remember a time when I was just really wrestling with that truth to say, wait a second, I don't know if I like that. And there was moments when I was been wrestling with that really in a really profound way to say, I don't know, maybe Christianity is not for me. Maybe I'll go see if there's another option. I think another challenging one, you know, is the idea of, of sin and hell. You know, does a loving God really send people to hell and are lost people really lost? Those are just a few of them that, that were for me. I mean, I'd, you've probably had some of your own. I mean, for some people, it's wrestling with the idea of a loving God and the presence of evil in this world. For some, it's kind of the truth that's laid out in verse 65 that says, Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What is that one revealing? It's, it's this tension between God choosing people and people's choice of him. Maybe for you it's the biblical truth about complementarianism, that God made men and women completely equal before God, but he made them to complement one another. Maybe there's profound moments of, of wrestling with the, the sovereignty of God and the love of God when it is very, very clear that his plan for your life is not, not yours. Maybe through the untimely death of a loved one or your career gets derailed. We had a church planner who was planning a church outside of Detroit, 
and when the Detroit crashed and the, and the auto industry crashed, you know, he would send us these prayer updates and said, uh, one month he sent us an update and said, it's re- amazing, God just really blessed and preserved our congregation, and we're, we're doing okay. And less than 30 days later, he sent us an email saying, this Sunday is our last Sunday. Because the entire church lost their job and was moving away. The entire church, boom, like that, gone. There are these profound moments of, re- of wrestling with the sovereignty of God when it's clear that his plan is not ours. There are hard things that we need to wrestle with. And here is the most difficult one of all. It comes in verse 61. Jesus, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, Do you take offense at this? Then what if... Here's what's really offensive. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? This is a reference to the pathway that he would go into glory, namely through the cross. And what is most offensive here is this truth that God would become flesh, live a perfect life, and that he would die as a criminal in, as he would die as a criminal in place of you and in place of me. And he would rise from the grave. And what is offensive is that I need that. That, that my only hope is through, the, is through Christ's sacrifice. And that you can't make up for it for yourself. And Jesus says, do you want to know what's offensive? Is that I'm the one who has to die for you. You see, every, every Christian, every, every true believer and every would-be Christians, Christian wrestles with belief. And you come to these points in your life where you are confronted again with, with hard sayings, where we, we have these profound moments where we say, do I believe this? And, and am I committed? And let me just encourage you, is that if that's where you are at this moment, don't be surprised by this. Don't be surprised by it. It's part of what it means to be a follower of Christ, is to wrestle with this. Also, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of these doubts and questions I'm not afraid of them. I'm not afraid for you if you have these doubts of questions. But what does make me afraid is if you have the doubts and questions and you don't press through them. And you just ignore them because they won't go away. Because what happens is that when we have these profound moments of wrestling, the Lord is giving you an opportunity to know him and to trust him in a much deeper way, in a much more profound way. And I do believe that honest questions deserve honest answers. And that there are good answers to the difficult and challenging questions with which we need to wrestle with in our spiritual journey. But this text encourages us here that that true Christians wrestle with belief. And what happens for those who who are true believers is that God by His Spirit moves us to a place of clinging to Christ. And this is exactly what happens to Peter. It's that the crowd, there are people who have been leaving Jesus. They've been, we've gone from 15,000 down to a smaller crowd of just the groupies that are following, down to a smaller crowd of just the disciples, and then, the, then disciples leave, and it's left with just the 12. And Jesus turns and he looks at, this 12, at the 12 and he says, Matthew records, or John records this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, Notice the difference between the disciples and the twelve. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And I'm pretty confident where there was a moment where they were sitting there and they are saying, 
I don't know. Do I? Do, do I want to go away as well? Maybe. I don't know. But Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And this is the verse that continues to have an incredibly profound impact in my life. And it, the way that it works is like this, is that many of you have known that um, I've been losing my eyesight for the last, for the last many years. Um, I had, it started when I was in seminary that I was in school. I was sitting in class one day and I looked up and I couldn't see my professor's face anymore. And then I turned and I looked down at my textbook and I couldn't see um, one of my pages on my textbook. And so I went to the retina center at uh, Washington University Hospital and they looked at my eyes and they said, okay, yeah, you've had this particular type of hemorrhage and there isn't anything we can do about it right now, um, but it should go away and you shouldn't have this happen again. And so I had this massive blind spot develop in my eye and then about two weeks later, it happened again. And I had this another one. Went back to the doctor, same rigmarole, you shouldn't lose any more eyesight. But I did, okay, it shouldn't happen again. And a week after that, it happened a third time. Same course of sequence, shouldn't happen again. We don't know why this is continuing to happen. And I remember the day that I was sitting in class and I had these spots and I looked up and it just went and just, it just disappeared. And my vision just went away. Um, and so from that time, I have, this is in my left eye in particular, you know, from that time over the years, I've, I've got four different reasons why I've been losing my vision. Um, some of them due to hemorrhaging, some of them due to episodes that cause massive vision loss. Um, other reasons why I'm losing my vision is that I've got this hole in my retina that continues to expand, kind of like um, it's progressively expanding, kind of like water on the leading edge of a hole in the sand. It just, it just kind of edges, it kind of just works it away. And, um, you know, and uh, hopefully it's slow. <laughs> um, and whenever I go to the doctor, the doctors, they're always amazed that, that I see as well as I do. Um, they, I mean, they, every time I go, they say, you really shouldn't be seeing as well as you see right now. And I think that's just a testimony to people praying and the Lord answering those prayers. And it's also a realization for me that at any moment, the rest of it's going to go. Um, and so where I am just at this moment, like when I'm standing here right now, I cannot see the, this left center section over to where Rich and Day back to the sound booth. Like standing here, I can't see any of this, this portion. And that's, it comes up with a variety of challenges. Sometimes it's a little bit funny, like earlier um, in December, Vicki and Janice put a Christmas tree in my office that was all lit up. It was a four-foot-tall Christmas tree. It was like all bright lights and decorated. And I came into my office and uh, I didn't see it. And then I'm sitting at my desk and I'm working at something and I look up and it's like, boom, Christmas tree. Like, whoa, how did you guys do that? That was amazing. Like, not Christmas tree, now Christmas tree. And Vicky and Janice were like, uh, do we tell them? Like, <laughs> do we tell them or do we not tell them right now? <coughs> Excuse me. And, and, and let me just also answer a question that some people have asked is that, um, 
Some people have asked me, you know, is the, the volumes of stuff that I'm reading right now, is that a, a complicating factor? And the answer to that is no. Um, I've got this hole in my retina that's just continuing to expand. Um, it's like termites in your house. They just continue to go whether you, no matter how many people walk in and out of the front door of your house, the termites just continue to eat things. Um, and that's currently the situation that I'm finding myself in. And up until a year ago, I'd only had these episodes of vision loss, um, and they didn't really think the progressive nature would be a continuing problem. However, starting a year ago, the progressive nature of it has started to continue to move forward, even as recently as two months ago. And as I've wrestled with this in this journey, I remember just very profoundly um, when you had the initial onset of this, just dealing with this truth of, uh, and just the reality of my life, and, you know, all kinds of questions are going through my head. You know, what does this mean? Um, what am I going to do? Uh, what does this mean for me to become a dependent in my marriage? You know, this isn't supposed to be continuing, yet it's continuing at a much faster rate than anyone thought and said shouldn't happen. Um, questions about, like, would I get to see my kids? Would I get to see my, my daughters get married? Would I... You know, all those questions that start running through your head again and again and again. And I remember I was sitting at a stoplight uh, right outside of Maplewood, Missouri, in front of Target, making a left-hand turn, and uh, just completely overwhelmed by all these different factors, wondering whether or not I needed to drop out of school, whether or not I'd go into ministry or not. Um, and I remember I was sitting at this stoplight and just a, a mess and just had this overwhelming sense of the, the presence of God come upon me and just confront me with the truth of the Lord saying to me, do, do you, Walt, do you really think that your effectiveness is dependent upon you? Do you really think that what you that what you can do and can't do in ministry is really about you instead of me? Do, do, you, do you really think that I can't use you if you can't see? And conversely, do you think that I can only use you if, if you do see? And it was in this, this moment that just this overwhelming presence of the Lord to, to, you know, in confronting me at this point to realize that I'm the Lord's, that he's the potter and I'm the clay. And as I continue to wrestle with this, you know, in, in some very profound moments, you know, moments where I'm saying, like, okay, what are my options? What if I quit? You know, what are my possibilities? I was like, okay, one possibility is to... Abandon my relationship with Jesus. One possibility is maybe I need to go look for a new career. And I, I was sitting there and I was, actively, I was actively thinking through what are my options as I deal with this. In some way that I would get away from what appeared to be the course that the Lord has for me. And now as I was sitting there, as I was wrestling through this in a very raw way, I had this, I don't know how else to describe it, this compulsion against my will, I might even say, I had this compulsion arising within me to profess out loud, Lord, 
To whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life, and, and I have believed and I have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where would I go? And so I, I actually, I mean, I, I paused and I, I said, where would I go? And so I wrestled with that question. I'm like, well, where, 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 where could I go? And then I was confronted with Psalm 139 that says, where shall I go from your presence or where, I, where shall I f- go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there too. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the earth, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. So I said, all right, well, like, where am I going to go? And the next question was, even if I went there to flee from the presence of the Lord, even if I went down the path of let me abandon my relationship with Jesus, like, what would I do? Like, Lord, where would I go and, and, and what would I do? You have the words of eternal life. They're only found in you. They're found in you and they're found nowhere else. And I was like, Lord, I mean, where, what am I gonna, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Because without you, like, I'm toast. I, I mean, I, I, am, I am hosed. And so not only in wrestling through the logic of the situation, but there's the other part of the phrase where I was like, you know, Lord, where would I go? You have the words of eternal life. And I have come to know. And I have come to believe, and I cannot deny that you are the Holy One of God. And so it is through these very, this very raw and sobering journey you know, that the Lord has repeatedly brought me to a place of surrender. You know, to say to him, I'm yours. My only hope is in you. And at times when I was angry about this, which I'm not anymore, at times when I was angry about this, my prayers to the Lord would, would go something like this. They'd say, like, you know, Lord, right now, it feels like this ship is sinking. But come hell or high water, I'm going down with the ship. But the amazing thing is that the ship never sank. And God continues to be faithful and continues to draw me back to a place of saying, Lord, you know, my, my only hope is in you, and I'm going to hold on to you with every, with every ounce. I'm going to cling to you with every ounce and fiber of my being because you're my only hope. And after that moment, through the years, as I have continued to have increased vision loss and emergency trips to Hopkins and as I've come to, you know, at various low points emotionally through this journey, this verse continues to strengthen me and to come back again and again and saying, Lord, where am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life, and I, I have come to believe, and I have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I don't, I don't want to be anywhere else. And in working through that, it's like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the future holds. But I am forever thankful 
that I know the one who holds the future. The nature of Christianity and the nature of our spiritual journeys is that the Lord brings us to these profound places of belief, to these profound moments of saying, God, do I trust you? And are you trustworthy? And he proves himself faithful again and again and again. And so, yes, true Christians wrestle with doubt and they wrestle with their beliefs. And true Christians return again and again and cling to Jesus Christ. And so may we cling to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are trustworthy. That you are good. That you are a loving Heavenly Father. And Lord, that you work all things for good. And Lord, thank you that that the challenges as we face in our life are not a sign of your displeasure or your disapproval but they're actually signs of your mercy and grace and love to us. It doesn't always feel that way. But it is true. And so, Lord, may we rejoice in Christ Jesus. May we rejoice that our only hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but that I belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my precious Savior, Jesus Christ, and that there is not a hair that can fall from my head apart from the will of my Heavenly Father. So, Lord Jesus, would you encourage us with this truth? And, Father, there are some here today who hear this, and they are oddly encouraged. They've just heard challenging truths, just hear their pastor talk about how he's losing his vision, he's oddly okay with that. And it's a reminder that you are good and that you are loving and faithful. And Father, through your spirit, there are some here that are being drawn to you. Lord, would your spirit move them that they would not resist it, but they would run to Christ. And that they would know you and trust in you as their Lord and Savior and as their only hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.